Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to help you scale from 2 million to 100 million ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Philippe Jellies, the CEO at Cantox. Philippe, welcome to, to the show. Thank you. So it would be great to get to know a little bit more about yourself and how did you end starting up Cantox? Okay, so uh, before Cantox, I spent years uh, in consulting. It was, to be honest, I can tell it now, quite boring. Uh, <laughs> I learned some stuff and in the end, I, I, I met there one of my co-founders. So in the end, the outcome was very good. Um, cool. But so I spent seven years in consulting, uh, the last years in Deloitte. Uh, I have a typical background, uh, business school, I'm French. Uh, I left France long ago. I live in Switzerland, in Mexico, Barcelona, and now I'm, I'm, I'm splitting with London too. Uh, and as you say now, uh, uh, happy to be uh, driving Cantox and, and trying to maintain good growth and, and to make sure that we make a difference in, uh, in the fintech industry. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, can you explain a little bit more about what is uh, Cantox and what is the difference that you are uh, making in the industry? So it's a fairly technical uh, solution. I mean, we are pure B2B. Mm -hmm. um, our, let's say, sweet spot are what I would name large SMEs and mid-caps. So clients with revenue starting from maybe 50 million in revenue to 1 billion, sometimes a bit above. And what we do is we provide solutions that we plug to clients' uh, ERPs or financial systems to completely automate anything related to foreign exchange and in particular to uh, the management of um, FX risk. So FX risk means that, as you probably know, exchange rates are constantly moving and as a business given usually you have payment terms between the moment you sell something and the moment you get paid the exchange rate can move and you can eventually make money or lose money so we provide solution to automatically uh, mitigate this risk and make sure that companies are protecting their profit margin got it and it's a very interesting point that you do you consider yourself a SaaS or not SaaS so I always say uh, that we are an hybrid. Why? Because if you look at our product, I mean, if you are really in front of the screen, it looks like a SaaS. Uh, and in the end, it's very much software driven. But we always have a transactional piece in the sense that to provide to clients the solution to mitigate FX risk, we also need to be executing financial transactions on their behalf. So given we have a really financial transaction component, I consider we cannot be considered a SaaS completely. Uh, and on top of that, our business model is a mix of subscription as any SaaS, plus a fee on the financial transaction we execute. So we are really in hybrid. Uh, it makes us very different. It also makes it harder to explain to mm -hmm. investors because you know investors like putting companies in boxes. In boxes. So you are SaaS, you are transactional, but when you explain you are an hybrid between both, they start getting lost. Right. Got it. And I think that's the same um, kind of package or box where Travel Park uh, is as well, which is not uh, completely poor uh, and SaaS and it's in all rankings related with, uh, with SaaS. But definitely there is a strong component of your business model that is uh, SaaS. And I'm sure that the recurring part uh, is very, very interesting. We have a quite predictable revenue. So in that sense, I would say we are reasonably close to a SaaS, but it's not perfect predictability in the sense that we can more or less know how much a client will generate every month. 
but it's really more or less because there is the fee on the FX transaction we execute on their behalf, which is basically depending on the volume we execute for them. So predictability is good, but it's not exactly the same as us. We always discuss three critical ingredients to, to scale in the show. So the first one is focus, number two is team, and number three is um, culture. So uh, in terms of focus, uh, today we aim to double or triple every single year. Uh, and sometimes in order to achieve that kind of growth, we tend to open too many avenues, too many geos, too many segments, too many verticals, sizes of markets. I know that you have a very clear 50 million to 1P uh, core customer. Uh, so how do you assure us the leader of, of Cantox in different stages uh, from pre-series A to series A, series B, um, to, um, to really assure that the company is, is focused on, on the milestone to get to the next uh, stage of the company? So if you take um, our example and our history, I would say that we have always been very focused on the fact that what we offer is foreign exchange, B2B only. We never thought about, for example, offering the same kind of solution for retail. So it was always very clear in that sense. Our space was very clear. Then in terms of product, we have evolved a lot. In the very beginning, it was very much focused on transactional. Then we started building this software layer in the middle to automate all the processes. And now I would say we are closer to a SaaS than really um, to a transactional business. And I think that in that journey, what has been very important is to stay focused, but not too much. Mm -hmm. my, my view is that in, in many businesses and in particular in B2B, where you have a sales team and so where in the end, the growth is very much sales driven, not so much marketing driven. You, mm -hmm. Ideally, you need to always let a bit of room to your sales team to be creative, to think about new things mm -hmm. and to really open their mind in terms of what we will offer, where we will go. What I mean here is that you cannot let any sales do basically what you want because then it becomes a complete mess. Mm -hmm. But being too narrow at some point can also be counterproductive in my view. So if we have been able to do this evolution from pure transactional to more and more SaaS model where the unit economics are much stronger. Our product has become really very unique in the market. And so that's the reason why now we are in a very strong position is because at some point we let room to our sales team to really try to think about innovative solutions, really fitting client needs and not to be super, super focused on what we had in the past. So I like the idea of focus, but I think that sometimes some people uh, are too extreme in, in that sense. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I see nowadays more than, more than any time in the history of tech, the market is accelerating, innovation is accelerating, things mm -hmm. are changing very fast. So if you think about it, you need to be constantly reinventing yourself. So you need to maintain a minimum focus, definitely, but you need to be open-minded. And, and I see if you take the large tech companies, it's a very good example. Uh, take Microsoft 15 years ago and Microsoft now. I mean, there is a massive amount of money coming from the cloud computing and, and other mm -hmm. business lines, while 20 years ago it was Windows and, uh, and, and, uh, and Microsoft Office, you know what I mean? So yeah. I think on some specific things, you need to be very focused, but always be open-minded. 
And in my view, this is how you evolve and you adapt to a changing environment. Got it. Uh, and in terms of, of GIS, so we see this mistake uh, happening a lot of times. So we rate Series A or even Series B or even Series C, and we open in all markets, we launch all markets, which sometimes it's a good uh, experiment to try not only one, but two or three, and then double down on the one which is not working and uh, get back from the ones who are not working. Um, what was your experience with, with Cantox uh, in terms of geographical focus? So by, by nature, we have always been, I would say, international, global, because we, we are in the FX space. So by default, if you are in the foreign currencies business, your clients are international. Um, from the very beginning, due to European regulation, we were basically available to clients Europe-wide. Mm -hmm. And we, we have our headquarters in the UK and our main office in Barcelona. So we started from day one with, with two different countries. We always resisted the idea of opening local offices in many countries. Uh, two reasons. First, there's the cost. Mm -hmm. But second, it makes management of the team harder. Right. And I would say it's harder to maintain a strong culture and dynamics if you have people in many different geographies. Um, and, and to come back to your question, we have also always resisted uh, this idea of moving to the US as soon as possible. <laughs> I think there is a massive number of companies making the mistake of thinking that going to the US is by and the best idea. Mm -hmm. So very often they go there unprepared with a business which is not fine-tuned, uh, a sales engine which is not fine-tuned, business economics that are not very clear. They go there, they completely underestimate uh, the challenge it is to start there while you're not an American company uh, because hiring the best talent is, is much harder in that sense. So we are in a business where the market is, is absolutely gigantic. Uh, we could be 10 times bigger only in Europe. So we will eventually go to the US at some point, but probably in a reasonably lean way with a partner to test the market, test the water, learn, and eventually then deploy more resources. Um, but I think that in the last years, there is so much liquidity in the market and so much pressure from investors to grow that many, many uh, companies go abroad, go international and open geographies way too early in their, uh, let's say, in the, in the process, yeah, because yeah. I think that to really open new markets, you need to have some degree of maturity. Mm -hmm. And many companies do that without this maturity. And in the end, what they do is they burn a lot of money yeah. to get, in the end, very, very non-significant market share. So it would have been much better to double down on the existing market than to try to go international. Yeah. But in the end, you know, it's, it's a bit the same. People get excited about fundraising and fundraising are good for ego. <laughs> People are excited about going abroad and in the US and it's good for ego. <laughs> the problem is that I would say very often when you build a tech company, uh, ego is not necessarily the best driver. Absolutely. And this is a very good point to introduce um, the second pillar, the second ingredient of, of scaling up, which is the team. And you just make the most important component of a team. It's always uh, at the top. So the CEO needs to be an example. That's why it is such a demanding uh, position. And we believe that we have almost seven companies from two to 200 million that we'll need to, um, to manage. 
which will which will demand seven different CEOs and seven different uh, leadership teams, and that's why it's so difficult. This is exactly a roller coaster, and uh, usually those cycles and those new companies are formed every single every twelve to eighteen months, uh, which which shows how difficult it is to transform ourselves. So, how do you assure that you don't become the bottleneck uh, as the CEO uh, of the company? We're talking about ego. That's why I introduced the topic. That's a complex question. Eh? <laughs> That's a complex question. And, and I'm not sure that as a CEO, you are the best person to really evaluate if you are still the best person to run the company. Um, what, what I always try to do is to try to get in each, I would say, team or fields so of commercial, marketing, tech products, uh, people that are good enough for me to be able to delegate quite quickly and in the end to let them room and to get involved when I really see some kind of really sensitive thing. So for example, uh, if I see that in the commercial team, which is basically our sales organization, which is our main growth driver, at some point uh, the machine is not working as expected, uh, I get involved. If it's working well, I try to take a step back. And then it's also depending on my degree of, of, of I would say, certainty. I mean, for example, in, in things that are commercial, very often I think of Ottawa having a strong opinion, deciding, and, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But then there are other fields like technology where you have basically no clue. So in that case, my philosophy will be, no, you don't know anything about technology, you're not an engineer. So you should trust the team for almost everything. So I, I'm very, very, very little involved in tech because I consider I don't really have the knowledge and credibility uh, to make the difference there. So I try to stay focused on a limited amount of things. And ideally, when it starts working well, to really take a step back. But as you say, meaning be, being a CEO is, 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 is a, a job that's changing every 12 or 18 months, 24. And now we are 120. So we are at the moment when I can less and less be involved in the day-to-day, -day, except in some very specific things. So we are starting right now, uh, redesigning a bit the organization to make sure you have less direct reports, to make sure that the team leaders have more autonomy, and to make sure I can really focus on the long-term strategy, investor management, and this kind of thing, instead of really being involved in the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. But that's true that it, it's easier to say or to read, right. because there are many articles about about the subject than really to do because uh, it looks simple, but by the, by default or by nature, I would say it's a natural evolution that happens day to day okay. and day after day. So, I mean, it's not like from today to tomorrow, my CEO role will completely change. No, it's, it's a process that's maturing over time. Yeah. Uh, and this is what makes it really complicated. That, that's a very good point, and um, I think that's that's the first question that I ask to any CEO. So, how many direct reports or any leader in the company they they have? And it is proven. This is scientific proven that five to seven is the ideal number of the team, and more than that, uh, politics and uh, we start distracting each other, and we, we can't work effectively um, as a team. But we also know that uh, this is a, a scale up and a startup and there are some moments that 
the team is not totally balanced and we might be uh, more people than expected or less people than needed. It also happens the, the opposite and, and for, that's why it's so difficult to manage because sometimes we already need a, a stronger leadership team but we don't have yet the stage maturity, the resources to, to bring that, that team on, on board. And, and, and that's why it's, it's so difficult because we don't have 30 or 40, 50 years to do changes uh, in, a, in a much easier way. So what were some of the VPs that were more difficult or ads or directors, depending on the way you, you, but I would say the senior leaders that report to you. So what were the positions that were more difficult to you to, to hire until now? So look first, now I have 12 direct reports, way too much, way too many. <laughs> um, so we are now reorganizing, uh, I see in two or three months, I will go down to eight, which is maybe still a bit too much, but the idea after some years to be at seven, eight, then it depends on uh, the intensity you dedicate to each of them. Uh, again, the CTO who's a co-founder reports to me, but honestly, I'm very, very little involved in the tech part. So it's a direct report to me, but it's not really consuming my time. The difficulty with, with let's say, hiring and growing the, the leadership team is that you will always have probably to make, uh, let's say the mix of the team will always be people that are already here and that will grow with the company, the team and the function. So the same way that I was learning as a CEO because it was my first uh, role as a CEO, others are learning too, and others are doing it well, and others are struggling. So for example, uh, our CTO, uh, he also learned, so now he has 30 something people report, not directly reporting to him, but the 30 people team, and he has grown and learned, and, uh, and he's managing very well. You have other roles where it hardly works. So for example, if it's a sales and commercial team, it's very hard, mm -hmm. usually, to have someone here from the very beginning becoming the, the CCO or VP of sales, depending on the naming, when you are then 50 people, for example. So this is a typical role that you have to hire outside. And this is what we did uh, several years ago. And the challenge in that case is you don't want to take someone too senior too early because usually, I would say, in, in the commercial organizations, they are based on my experience and and a lot of discussions I had with other entrepreneurs. 90% mm -hmm. uh, of good salespeople will never be good sales leaders, mm -hmm. which means that it's very hard to have really people uh, in your team when you're small becoming becoming as a chief commercial officer. And when you hire one outside, if you take someone too senior, very often, if you have not fine-tuned the machine already enough, this person is not necessarily what we name a builder is more a runner. So it takes mm -hmm. the organization already fine-tuned with, with 20, 30 people and brings it to 100 because it's mainly a matter of hiring, managing, and fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. So if you take this person while your machine is not well fine-tuned already and this person is not a builder, he will probably struggle a lot. But if you take a person that's less experienced and that's a builder, very quickly when it will be more about management and scaling, he will struggle because he will not be a runner. Right. So in the commercial organization, it's always a, a big challenge. I mean, you cannot take people too senior too early, uh, but you should not wait too long either yeah. to find this kind of profile. Uh, 
And I would say this is my main learning. So when you are a sales organization, you have some people who try to reasonably go far enough. Usually you are a small group, no one is able to take the leadership. So you take someone eventually from outside, but a builder that will really fine tune the sales engine. And when it's fine tuned, this is where you take someone much more senior who's a runner and multiply the size of the team by two, three, four, five, ten right. to really scale. Right. And I would say this is probably what, in terms of sales organization, uh, American companies have really managed very well for very long now. And, and this is probably why they have been the leaders by far in SaaS for a very long time is that in this sales process, a sales driven environment, they have understand very well how to basically grow a team, build a sales engine, and then make sure to scale the sales engine. Yeah. And the other component as well. So we, we see a trend in, in B2B SaaS enterprise to, to work a lot about thought leadership and about marketing. So some examples, I would say Drift uh, or even here in Europe, um, Intercom, um, which we have CEOs and even gain sites uh, around customer success. So creating categories or even a, a Belgian company, not a French, but the Belgian company called Colibra in, in New York, uh, where they've been 10 years building a category. Uh, in this case, I think that they didn't uh, wrote, a, they didn't write a book, but I think that some of those companies also invest in writing a book, uh, speaking in conferences. So the CEOs and the main executives become really thought leaders in, in the space. And that's the way they influence decisions uh, because yeah, they, they are also the experts on, not only on the product that they sell, but also on, on the category of where the product uh, is. So what do you think about this component of marketing, which typically I think one of the struggles of a lot of companies, it's, it's very mid long-term oriented. And as you said, uh, if you don't have the sales machine in place, uh, you can have the marketing machine just getting results uh, five or 10 years later and uh, it will not help uh, to scale. So usually it's a very good effort to scale the last mile and to, to go from the 20 to 100 million uh, ARR. Maybe it will not be enough to get to the 10 million uh, if we have a very marketing, a very good marketing machine. So we, um, it's exactly our example. I mean, we, we understood, so first we arrived I would say uh, we started at a moment when it was the very beginning of fintech. Mm -hmm. So we started, uh, so we me in particular, uh, starting to write a lot about fintech because I think that becoming a thought leader to, 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 to introduce this concept is probably the, in B2B in particular, the most effective marketing in the sense that it's basically free. You need a bit of time to write, but in the end it's not too much. And it has much more impact on clients and, and I would say specialists in your field than any kind of advertising or paid marketing or something like and, and at some point when, when we started seeing a lot, a lot of people speaking about fintech with more or less good insights, I would mm -hmm. say, look, now it's, it's hard to be very visible uh, in fintech because there is too much crowd. So we decided that what we would try to do then is to become really thought leader in our space, which is again, solutions to, to manage effects, which is, I can say we invented a new category or new kind of software solutions. And in that case, when we invent something new, being the thought leader helps create a category. 
and this is something we have been doing for two or three years and i see it has made a clear difference that's true that it takes time you cannot really have a clear view of how much it will benefit you even on the long long run you know it will but it's very hard to measure so you have really to be comfortable with that and have the gut feeling that on the long long run it will really help you but it's very a very different way of, of of doing marketing and i think for me it's something that should go in parallel of your marketing team what they do day to day yeah. i mean this is something when i do it i wrote articles i do it by myself because yeah. i'm not very much involved um, but i think that any ceo in any field which is fairly new so when you have to really to build to build the category, it's something very valuable. We we never we never regretted it. Uh, and if you take one of the, the thought leadership in fintech, it was four years ago, a bit more than this. We wrote an article which was titled, if I'm not wrong, "Why Fintech Banks uh, Will Rule the World," and it was a lot about the concept of marketplace banking. So what mm -hmm. now is named a neo bank? Very often right. they offer a lot of products. Not necessarily that they have built, but that are coming from third parties. So this is a concept of marketplace banking. Uh, and in some ways, this is us that invented this idea and concept four or five years ago. Cool. And this has given us a lot of visibility online uh, in Twitter, but it was kind of LinkedIn, which for us is the most important social media, but it's, it's where our clients are. Yeah. And we have been now doing a bit the same uh, in, in, in corporate FX, even if it's something much more specialized and less visible, because it's, mm -hmm. I always, say it, uh, joking that it's a it's a boring business but we like boring <laughs> businesses with very good unit economics absolutely uh, but yeah something actually for me is something that any ceo should have in mind uh, because it makes a difference and thought leadership for the outside is also related with uh, thought leadership for inside which is related with our third component to scale to get to those high ambition uh, growth rates. Uh, so if we have the team focuses, if we have a world-class team that really thinks about the strategy, designs the strategy and executes the strategy, then it's all about having the culture that sustains the strategy because we all know that the culture eats breakfast, it's strategy at breakfast. So uh, it's very easy to have everything very well designed, but when the daily basis come, uh, we all forget what we decided that we'll be uh, doing. So how, how do you foster this culture of execution? And sometimes uh, I think that we discussed this in, in our previous conversations, also a culture of contrarians, understand where the market is and where uh, we can make the difference uh, as thought leaders of building that new category. So this is, this is also a complex question. Huh? <laughs> oh, oh, complex ones. <laughs> no, but I, I, first, I think like culture is fundamentally driven by how founders behave. Mm -hmm. And then when you grow, how the management behave, because when you start being more than one people, the benchmark is the management team in general, not only the founders. So culture is very much based on founder's behavior. So you have really to think about what you do, how you do it, and and, and, and the messages in some way you naturally sell or send to your team. Um, then what I personally try to do is to constantly maintain this kind of uh, healthy pressure on the organization. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that in, in sales, B2B sales driven organization like us, in the end, you can always do more, uh, get more clients, get bigger clients, 
be more pushy to try to deliver more. So we try to always maintain this positive pressure. When I say positive pressure, I mean to maintain pressure, but not to a point where people start getting stressed and the organization may break. But this pressure, which is in some way uh, generating this ambition of always looking for more. And in the end, I think that culture is much less about having it written. So we have, we have, we have things written. We have values. We have, but in the end, it's about really the example you give uh, as a founder or as a manager. Is this what you should constantly uh, try to maintain or improve? Uh, because in the end, it's a people thing. It's the same in sport. In the end, uh, mm-hmm. being the trainer of a team or being the leader in a team is right. really what what you show others and the way you behave is the way others will behave. So. Management and founders set the benchmark. So if you are lazy, you will have a lazy organization. Absolutely. And if you are pushy, you will have a pushy organization. So really it's about behavior. And um, you were you were talking um, about this concept of giving the example and I was thinking, and you were also talking about uh, coaches and sports, and I was thinking about football. Uh, and I was imagining a little bit the role of the captain and because we, we tend to talk about the founders and leadership team, which I completely agree with you. That's where culture uh, completely starts. Uh, it always starts at the top and what is happening in the organization is also a mirror um, of ourselves, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, that's, that's how it is. Um, and that's why we, we demand so much of, of ourselves. And sometimes I think that we should also take care a little bit more <laughs> uh, of ourselves. The middle management is critical. So the people who are in the pitch, uh, talking with the ones who are playing the game are critical. And I think that this role is also what some leaders struggle, as you were saying before, in this transition from IC to manager, from manager there, it's really to understand that at this time they, they don't play. So they give the example, but they need to assure that they will get the results by having other players playing and coaching them to play and to, and to win the goal. And those captains, those middle managers um, are critical that they also give the example, they trust uh, the leaders. I know that you have some initiatives to um, that you are starting about having middle managers together with with the CEO and and listening to them. So can you share a little bit with our audience? Yes, it, it was part I would say of the growth of the team. Yeah. Uh, we try, so we have always tried, but we keep on trying to have the organization as flat as possible. Uh, and flat is not only about the the org chart. So flat first is that uh, everyone is is seated in, in open open space and everyone mm-hmm. is reachable. So I'm seated, for example, with a sales team because I consider it's a sales-driven organization. So you have to be with them on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that's true that there is also the orchard component. So we basically during a long time had managers and below managers, the rest of the team. So to simplify it for the three layers, orchard, me, the manager and the team, we had to create a middle management layer in the last 12 months because at some point when you grow, you need it. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time in the last two, three years with the managers. And now I start spending time with the middle managers. And also with the middle managers, directly with them, not only uh, through the managers. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's important because what happens with middle managers are usually they are in a team, I don't know, in marketing, in sales, in product, in tech. So very often they are 
again, behaving the way people behave is their own team. But if they want to grow and learn, you also need to make sure that they behave as we expect as a world organization. As they get a broader view, they start understanding much better all the things. They start having a cross view on the company. Uh, so this year is a year when I will start spending a lot of time with middle managers because in some ways they are, they are the managers of the future. So uh, it's definitely challenging uh, because you speak to people that are in many cases uh, younger, uh, with less experience, which in some cases have spent time doing one single thing because we try to specialize people. And then you have profiles that are very different. I mean, between a, a middle manager in sales managing a team of five or six and someone in a smaller team managing one person, there is definitely a massive difference. Uh, but in the end, spending time with the people and becoming the coach is definitely something extremely valuable. We are still very early in that process. Uh, it's definitely one of the challenges for you. Got it. Perfect. And um, there are still a critical component, uh, which is all about cash and assuring that we have the oxygen and the resources to keep scaling uh, the business. So can you just um, let us know a little bit? So what were some of the funding rounds that Cantox has raised so far? And there is also an important component that we never covered on, on the show, some insights about your experience with Venture Debt. So we have raised uh, from inception 23 million euros uh, until Series B. We are now working and close to finalize the Series C. Mm -hmm. um, we have always been relatively uh, lean for a FinTech company in terms of fundraising, but FinTech is really quite an expensive space because mm -hmm. of regulation and many things. Uh, you touch finance and finance is a sensitive thing. But we have been quite lean compared to the absolutely crazy numbers you see nowadays with uh, mm -hmm. some big players, neobanks, uh, doing rounds of hundreds of millions. Yeah. Uh, also because we arrived much earlier in the, in the process and in the trend. So we took a trajectory which was more defensive than some players now. My main learning on, on fundraising is that you should consider fundraising as a cycle. So it's not about what I have to do to raise the next round, but how do I have to think about fundraising as a succession of rounds and what will be the final outcome or what are my different, let's say, uh, opportunities uh, and ability to react and change my strategy if in the end things are not going as I expect. I see that nowadays there are way too many companies raising way too much money, too mm -hmm. fast, too early, and they will pay the price soon and we start seeing some of them. Um, so we have always tried to be reasonably uh, defensive in that sense and lean. We took some venture debt to answer your question because at some point we thought that look, we are, it's a nature of our business. We start having quite good predictability on revenue and revenue growth. And we are a business which is very much driven by people, which means most of our costs are people. So forecasting our cost is very easy. And so a couple of years ago, so look, in that context, raising some debt, so non-dilutive, makes a lot of sense because we can really manage our cash burn reasonably well. So. It's probably something not, it's not, probably not the right thing for any company, but when you can have a reasonably good productivity on, on revenue 
and on expenses. At some point, it makes sense to write something just because you did your class. Uh, and it also forces you in some way to be even a bit more uh, focused on really on burn expenses, this kind of thing. We did it with a Silicon Valley bank. So on top of that, we had a very good relationship with them and we built a very strong relationship. So it was definitely a good thing to do. Uh, but if I had to come back from the very beginning, I would say, or if I have to build another company now with experience, mm -hmm. I would say that I would really think about fundraising again as a long-term cycle. And more than that, allowing me to constantly have the flexibility to, let's say, uh, anticipate or delay the fundraising. Because the problem very often is you start having, let's say, good growth, good metrics, so you say, oh, now it's the moment to fundraise, but given you need, let's say, on average six months to fundraise, uh, maybe during the process, metrics start being not as good. Mm -hmm. So your fundraising is becoming harder, or sometimes you start fundraising with metrics that are not as good just because you need it, you have not enough cash. And in the end, you get you get a deal that's not super good, and just after revenue growth is ramping up again. So if you want to maximize, I would say, uh, the terms of a deal uh, limit dilution and in the end generate the best returns over the long run. I see that what's important is to always have this flexibility to anticipate or delay the fundraising. And this means managing where your cash burn. And more than that, really thinking about how to build a very robust machine over the long run and not building something which is going through up and downs. Uh, because this is the main challenge for for most 10 companies, you have up and downs, and very often uh, you need to fundraise when you are in a down. And this is when it becomes complicated, expensive, dilutive, very and painful. Point. Very good point. Timing, again, even in, in fundraising, getting in good shape uh, to the moment of the truth is really, really important and very difficult to do. Uh, so we come to the, to the end of the show with one of our favorite questions, uh, which is if you would have the opportunity to meet Philippe uh, at the beginning of this journey with Cantox, uh, what advice would you give to, um, to him? <laughs> I'm not sure I will tell him anything in particular. I don't, oh, I'm not sure I would aim to do anything very different. Uh, we, had, we had up and downs. Uh, we had... Uh, some stressful and painful moments, but it's part of the journey. Uh, it's part of the learning, or this is, this is when you really learn, when you have a, uh, complicated situations. What shows that it's a, by, by, by default or by nature, it's usually a long journey. Uh, startups built and sold for a massive amount of money in two or three years, it happens. But it's really unusual. So. I tend to consider that the startup from creating to an exit or eventually a moment where you are less involved because it's a very robust company, it's a decade. And a decade is long. And so you have to also to, to make sure you balance uh, business, private life. Uh, you make sure that you, you take some time for you. In the beginning, probably that I, I, I was a, a bit too much focused on the company. I remember the first two or three years, uh, almost no holidays. Uh, uh, and I see this is a mistake. Um, if you want to be ready for the long run, and if you want to make uh, good decisions as a CEO, you need uh, you need to be mentally uh, well, 
So not under constant stress. And so taking some holidays sometime for you is important. Working hard is by design necessary, but working hard doesn't mean working 80 hours a week at some point. I mean, if you, if you do that, you break. So you have to maintain always a balance. Uh, but then I would not advise him to do anything very different. I mean, in the end, it's learning is painful mm -hmm. in everything, uh, in sport, in, in mm -hmm. entrepreneurship. And I think it's also part of part of the journey. And in the end, this is when you had painful moments that then you enjoy the good moments. So Absolutely. I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I appreciate that. And, and then there is a typical question about if you exit the company, will you be the another one? And the game goes to the up and down. So become a professional a business angel, public speaker. Uh, <laughs> I'm quite sure I will be the another one because I, I really enjoy the journey. Amazing. That's that's great news for, for the ecosystem. Philip, thank you so much for joining us and making the time to share your experience uh, you. with us. So to our community, thanks for, for being there. We keep here bringing the best of the best to help you scale as fast as possible and if possible, to avoid some of the mistakes that they have done and to leverage some of the amazing things that they have done uh, as well. See you soon and keep scaling. <laughs>